Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. We've been doing this show for a number of years. And I remember uh, about, I think it was three or four years ago, I had two legislators from Alaska on the show to talk about um, their proposed legislation, well, actually it passed, uh, that would also protect pets under the domestic violence regulations and rules up there in Alaska. And I think a lot of states have done things like that. So we we know and we have uh, covered before on this show the importance and the significance of pets when we're talking about domestic violence situations. Today we have Nicole Forsyth with us. She is president and CEO of Red Rover. And Red Rover, uh, their slogan, slogan is bringing animals from crisis to care. And you do that in a number of ways. One of those ways is when you're dealing with intimate partner violence. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me on. Did I uh, introduce you correctly? Did I say uh, accurately what Red Rover does? I know it's a comprehensive organization. Um, we talked when, when we were doing arranging the show to talk mostly about domestic violence situations, but I know you do other things as well. Can you give us a rundown, a brief rundown of what Red Rover actually uh, does, their, their comprehensive role? Yeah, so, so a lot of people refer to us as an American Red Cross for pets. So we really are there in crisis situations where people and their pets together are in a crisis. So we're really looking for, you know, those moments in when, when people are really vulnerable. So it could be a natural disaster where people, you know, we know people won't evacuate um, if they can't bring their pets with them. So we know it's important to make sure people are considering the pets for disaster planning and emergency um, setups and evacuations and all of that stuff. So we're very involved in that. And then in the, same, in the same light, people won't leave an abusive relationship if they can't bring their pets with them. So it's just we're, we're, we're really all about, um, you know, understanding the importance of this bond for people and how it plays into their lives, especially in times of crisis. And also when it comes to healing, you know, being able to heal from a, a natural disaster or crisis or domestic violence situation, you know, having our pets with us, people, um, making sure people can stay with their pets uh, is really, really important in people's lives. And I think underestimated, um, one of the things with this pandemic, I think a lot of people are realizing is just how important pets are in their lives. And we're, we're hearing from more and more people about that. So, um, yeah, so we also help when people can't afford emergency veterinary care. And as we've seen with people losing their jobs, um, making sure they can still continue to pay for an emergency involving pets is something else that we've also been helping with. And then we also are really trying to... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that's quite significant. Um, I've been involved several times with uh, uh, pet owners who uh, had a crisis with their with their animal and just could not afford the vet care. And uh, even with service animals, vets usually will try and give some sort of discount for service animals, but it's still very expensive. And even the insurance costs an arm and a leg. You, you think when you get a, a dog or a cat that you get the, or an animal and you, you'll get the insurance, but the insurance rates are pretty much sky high now. If you've lost your job, yeah. you know, are you really going to yeah. be able to come up with an extra 100 to $200 a month to pay for the, the, the dog's insurance? And then right. if something happens, wow, you're, you know, it's, it's very tough. I, I remember a few years ago, uh, the person I was talking about I just couldn't afford the, the vet care. And so we had a network of um, 
uh, you know, that I just put out the word, you know, please, you know, make contributions directly to the veterinary office. And they got enough contributions to cover within $200 of the vet's expenses. Um, So that was very fortunate. But not everybody has, you know, that kind of a network. And uh, wow, that that in and of itself is worthwhile for having this organization. But then you said you do all these other things. Um, And I kind of cut you off, but you were going to mention one other thing that Red Rover does. Yeah, and just to kind of add, just to kind of add to what you were just talking about too, before I give our last program, we um, we really see that people don't have those networks, just like you said. So one of the things our case managers do, you know, we talk to people a lot on the phone after they've done their online application for for help. We get on the phone a lot of times with them and say, you know, have you gotten second opinions? Have you gone to different veterinary offices? Have you created a GoFundMe page? Have you done a Facebook fundraiser? Like we talk them through all of those um, options that a lot of times people just don't know how to do. Um, and so that that's, we provide a much bigger service than just those grants. And sometimes it's just a matter of talking to someone and saying, you know what, it is okay for you to think of your pet as a family member and to want to spend, you know, the $4,000, $5,000, whatever it is, um, to take care of your, to, you know, to save your pet's life. And I think people get mixed messages from their family that, oh, my gosh, it's just an animal. Why would you spend that kind of money? And, you know, people know that this is, this, this is a family member we're talking about. And so a lot of times um, our support is kind of that, that moral support of encouragement to, to, talk, to you know, listen to them and let them know it's okay to care. Um, but so our, our last program that we do is Red Rover Readers, and that is really trying to help kids at an early age start to explore that human-animal bond and what animals mean to them and to kind of talk about it and um, use it as a platform to, um, you know, develop skills to understand animal behavior and develop empathy for animals as well as understand positive relationships in general and how empathy plays a role in relationships between people as well. So it's a um, kind of a nice add-on because we see so many instances of animal cruelty and neglect and abuse and it's really nice to feel like we're doing something to get kids to maybe think ahead before they were going to potentially do something harmful to an animal or or a person. Well, you know, that's interesting because I, I, I do not believe, having raised a couple of kids, do not believe that empathy necessarily comes naturally to people. I think people have to be encouraged and taught yeah. empathy. And what better way to do that than teaching them with a pet? Um, exactly. That this is a, a that, that responds, that has emotions, that, you know, uh, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think that that's a, um, an amazing thing to try and uh, to teach empathy for everyone, every living thing, not just the, the animals, you know, it, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Of course, you can tell I'm a pet lover, but <laughs> on the other hand, <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm yeah. a practical pet lover. I mean, if somebody said, okay, you have to choose one of your kids or your dog, well, you know, uh, okay. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, I'm not <laughs> irrational about it, you know, but, yeah. uh, our animals are very important to us in, uh, with so many aspects. One of the questions that I've had over the years, uh, I was talking with a woman, it's been a while now, um, but she was in a very abusive situation. The husband had threatened to kill all of her animals if she, uh, took mm. the children or left. And she had more than just what we usually consider pets. She had a farm. She had yeah. some cows, she had some horses, she had donkeys, and she wouldn't leave. 
because she couldn't find yeah. anybody to take care of the animals. And, you know, I, I, my advice to her was, look, call the, the animal control, see if they can take the animals, to, you know, because better they should be safe yeah. than just with you. Um, but you're more important. You know, your life and your children are more important than this in the long run. Is that kind of contrary to what we're over practices? Or well, I think what I think what you brought up just shows, you know, unfortunately, what the situation you're talking about is really more common than people understand and realize, and that's part of what we're doing is really educating that. You know, this is pretty common. If there's an abusive relationship, and there's pets in, you know, in that host household most likely they're part of that abuse. It's very common. We, you know, there's, a, there's some research that shows um, you know, people, women have reported that, uh, you know, close to 70% of the, of the people surveyed have said that, you know, pets were either threatened or killed or harmed or somehow part of that abuse. So we know it's significant. And we know that nearly half of, roughly half of women, you know, people who are, who are um, in abusive relationships won't leave um, have, have delayed leaving simply because of pets and leaving them behind. So we know it's an issue, and um, it's one thing to tell someone, you know, you're more important, but if they don't feel that way, and I think a lot of times the victim of domestic violence doesn't feel important. That's part of the problem. And so they're not going to necessarily take that advice. They're, they're, they're going to stay because to them, keeping their pets alive is more important than their own life sometimes. So we, we know we need to help them. We know we need to get the pets out. And there are a lot of communities um, that do have those situations where they've got not just in, you know, inside pets, but they've got livestock and cattle and horses. And um, those are family members to those people. And, and they, uh, you know, the threat to not feed a horse, you know, if you leave, is pretty significant because we know if you don't feed a horse um, regularly, they can, they can go downhill pretty fast. So it's a pretty significant threat. And ensuring that a community has a way to help those particular domestic violence um, survivors uh, is really important. So we work with communities not just on housing pets on site, but you know developing programs that are needed in their community. And for some communities, that might be horses and livestock. Um, and so finding some partners in the community who can temporarily house horses is going to be important for some for some communities. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been it's been amazing to to see this to see this grow and to see the solutions that come up. And one of our biggest lessons that we've learned as we worked with domestic violence shelters throughout the country and, and now parts of Canada too um, is that every community is different. And the the best the most important thing the domestic violence shelter can do is find partners in the community that can help them. And and they're more than willing to do that. You know, find an, a boarding facility. Find um, a boarding facility that houses horses. Find um, you know animal shelters that can can help you when you have a situation arise and you don't know what to do. Um, find community community partners and funders who who are interested in funding animals and domestic violence. Um, and when people see that collaboration and that working together with other nonprofits, there's often a lot of a lot of money um, for, for for people willing to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the shelters issue is very significant. Um, this has been several years ago, but uh, when trying to get people to shelters, um, there was no, it was basically you just have to leave your pet behind. Um, if you yeah. can't find somebody to take care of your pet, you're out of luck. And uh, unfortunately, um, it, it, there was even a time where if you had a, 
a, a pre-adolescent boy, you couldn't take that boy into a shelter either. They'd, he'd have to be put into a, a men's shelter separate, you know, from mom yeah. and the girls. Um, you know, so the shelter's situation has, you know, struggled through a lot of different uh, challenges. But I still hear about shelters that will not take animals. More and more are doing it. But I, I still hear of some. Um, and uh, at least briefly around um, where I'm from, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, we were told that uh, there were shelters that would take animals, but only for a certain length of time, six weeks. And then yeah. that was it. You had to find, well, six weeks isn't nearly enough when you're trying to extricate from a, a domestic violence situation. Um, and, uh, you know, the psychological uh, import of, of having a dog or a cat and knowing that that animal is safe, uh, that's huge. But it's even better if you can put that relationship and, and stay, you know, with, with your pet. So just finding a shelter isn't ideal. Um, when you talk about finding community partners, is that something Red Rover helps with? Yeah, so part of our part of our application process, um, you know, kind of asks for people to find those partners. But if they don't have those partnerships already, that's another role that we play. So in addition to providing funding for domestic violence shelters to become pet friendly, we also help with the forms and you know the the um, getting them in touch with maybe other domestic violence shelters who have done the same thing or have a similar. Um, community or similar size, you know, getting them connected with other domestic violence shelters or animal shelters, um, helping them bridge those connections so that they can build programs that we know are going to be successful and sustainable. And that, and, and to just make sure they know they don't have to do this on their own. We recognize they're under so much pressure um, themselves and are underfunded often and, you know, struggling with so many challenges that we, we just want to make sure that we are there to give them the resources so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, we're, we're the pet experts. We can connect them to other pet experts so that they don't have to do, you know, all this on their own. Um, I think the other important thing that they've, that they've realized as they've done these programs um, and, and some of them have been, you know, gathering data now, um, they're, they're, we, we know that a lot of times domestic violence survivors go back to their abusers. What we now know is that they often go back because of the pets. So this is another reason that can save a lot of money in the long run as well as, you know, pain and heartache um, to get them out initially with the pets so that they don't have a reason to go back. Um, so, you know, helping, helping um, domestic violence shelters uh, do this right in the first place and, and making sure that they have, a, a, you know, a lot of them can only house um, cats, for example, or small dogs. And so the other thing that we do is make sure no matter what kind of animal comes into, into play, they have some resources that they can, they can help that particular survivor. So we also have safe escape grants. So like you mentioned, some, some domestic violence shelters have not been able to become pet friendly yet, and we understand that it takes a lot of time, and sometimes there's obstacles that are, make it really, really difficult. So we know that about 17% of domestic violence shelters now are pet friendly, but even then they're not able to take all kinds of pets. So we have a program called Safe Escape, and that provides grants um, directly uh, to, um, you know, domestic, uh, to a boarding facility so that the boarding facility can house the pets there and then the survivor can go seek assistance um, at a safe house. Who started Red Rover? It How was founded in 19... 
Yeah, so it was founded in 1987, so it's been around for a while. But it was, wasn't was really until, um, I think it's really, we, we, we offered some grants for domestic violence situations because we were offering grants for people in crises. So it just became, you know, it was one of many crises. Um, but it was really 2007 that we started to look at this a little bit more in depth. And since that time, we've given 978 safe housing, or sorry, safe escape grants, the grants that help with these um, boarding facilities, you know, so that people can um, get out immediately and have their pets go to a boarding facility. And that's translated to over 40,000 safe nights of boarding. Um, and this last year was our biggest number of nights ever um, for, you know, for a yearly number, just because of COVID, we, we really had to expand the number of days that the animals were in the boarding facilities because so many, um, you know, stay in place orders, the domestic violence uh, survivors were not able to leave their safe houses. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see an increase of um, animal cruelty over this last year? You know, it's not, it's a real hard thing to track. So it's not been something that we specifically have tracked. Um, I do know from our partners with animal shelters that it's been amazing how many, animals have been fostered. So there's, there's been some real positives in the, the fact that so many people have been home. Um, with a number of people home, more animals were fostered and, and taken out of animal shelters and brought into homes. So I think that was a real, you know, real positive. Um, but we haven't heard specifically about any cruelty increases. We do, we do hear that the domestic violence has been increasing, again, because people are home mm-hmm. more. So I can only imagine if, if the domestic violence is increasing, the animal cruelty in those homes, animal abuse in those homes is most likely increasing as well. Yeah, yeah it, it stands to reason, um, and, but it's very hard to track those numbers, I think. How did you get involved with Red Rover? Oh, gosh. Um, I have been there, it'll be 15 years in April, um, and, you know, I have always been passionate about animals but for me what I've loved about working at Red Rover is it's really allowed me to um, you know I have a background in um, animal biology so real science background as well as English and teaching um, and so for me when I when I came to Red Rover I was really excited to sort of use my love of science and you know getting accurate information really knowing what works and what's effective combining that love of science with my compassion and empathy and also my my belief in education you know i really believe that um the world can be better and we just have to find the right ways to help people be better and and help people be more kind and develop relationships that are positive and not hurtful and um you know for me it's real it's i see the possibility um maybe it doesn't happen as fast as i'd like uh, but when we put in place our red rubber readers program and we see um, kids light up and, and teachers light up when they when they work together and create this really positive classroom environment. Um, and when I see, you know, the staff at Red Rover work together positively, even through, you know, difficult times and lots of conflict, um, it just gives me a lot of hope that really people can be better, that the abuse and the neglect and the cruelty um, does not have to be there, that, that we can really do, do, that we can really put in place solutions to um, help prevent some of this. How many pets do you have? <laughs> I have three. I have three. Um, I have two cats and one dog and um, one 12-year-old. 
<laughs> okay. So you got I don't want to put her in. I don't want to put her in the pet category, but. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. What would we do without our pets? You know, you talk about uh, different um, organizations, different ways of of helping and teaching. Out here in the Pacific Northwest, we have a, a program called Reading with Rover. I don't know if you've ever heard mm. of it. It's supposed to. I have. Um, uh, oh, have you? Uh, well, I happen to know the the lady who started that out here, and that cadre of um, uh, of, of pet owners. Um, I mean, it's just huge. And I don't know if you've heard about our Oso landslide. We had a landslide a couple of years ago that wiped out a neighborhood. And uh, she even the, those those dogs from Reading with Rover even went out and did. Uh, kind of one-on-one with the survivors of the landslide. And they kept going back over a year. You know, they'd go back like once a month so the kids could see the dogs. It's just wonderful stuff. You know, I I think sometimes we, even when we know pets and even when we love pets, we forget how significant they can be, you know, in in our lives. They're huge. They're huge. Yeah. Now, I have to confess yeah. that having raised uh, rabbits and my fair share of gerbils and lizards and everything when I raised children, um, yeah, it's not quite the same. <laughs> it's not quite the same <laughs> yeah. as it is with, with a dog or a cat. But, um, you know, people get attached to them. Does uh, Red Rover do all sorts of pet animals or just dogs and cats? Yeah, we're definitely um, about any any animal that someone would consider a companion animal. So I, I think you're right. The bonds might be a little different between a reptile and a mammal. Like there's just different bio- biology involved there and in, in how you bond, but they're still there. Yeah. We've, we've heard of some incredible relationships that people do have with, with reptiles and birds and, you know, all sorts of animals. So we've seen it all for sure. And, um, you know, as we work with domestic violence shelters, they have also seen it all. Um, and, you know, I, I think it is, we, we mentioned kids. I think one of the, the biggest impacts we've seen in the domestic violence shelter environment is how meaningful it is for the kids that are in-house in safe houses to have their pets with them. So obviously the survivor, it's important, but sometimes, um, you know, the kids and their ability to, to cope with what's going on, having their pets with them mean, you know, makes a huge difference. Um, and uh, also just the environment, maybe for the kids, who didn't have pets or didn't leave with pets, having pets on site in some capacity has really changed the culture of a domestic violence shelter. You know, there's something about being around a pet that warms everybody. It sort of brings out almost almost everybody's authentic self. Now, there's there's some people who are afraid of animals, and, and that needs to be part of the consideration in, in creating pet-friendly spaces. Um, and, you know, sometimes... Uh, a, a pet, a dog particularly, can trigger someone in an, you know, who's been abused, and it can be a very negative experience and scary. So we have to keep those in mind when we're developing these programs. But you know, by and large, the impact of having pets on site is pretty profound. Um, and, and like you said, bigger than we sometimes realize. Um, there's some, and that's why I'm in this. There's something to, to me about our understanding the relationship we have with pets you know, why is it that we're so open and we're so vulnerable with our pets? You know, we talk baby talk to them. We, you know, we, we tell them our <laughs> deepest, darkest secrets sometimes. You know, we, we do things with mm-hmm. our pets that we wouldn't be, that we won't, don't do sometimes with our most loved family members. 
and, and why is that? You know, I find that somewhat sad. You know, why can't I be the same person I am with my dog as I am with my, you know, father, mother, sister, brother, whoever it is in my family? Um, what is it that stops us from being our most authentic selves? You know, is it judgment, fear of judgment? Is it, you know, some relationship development things that we just have become habits that I, I wonder, you know, can we undo some of those and have better relationships if we really think about how it is we are with our pets and, and why we sometimes, and there's been studies that have shown people often talk more openly and share more with a pet than they do with a significant other. And mm-hmm. I just find that very sad because to me, a relationship with a pet is so beautiful and so open. And, you know, you, you look at the unconditional love that a dog gives you when you come home from work or in this case, home from the grocery store because not many people are going to work necessarily. Um, and, you know, you see that love and you feel that love and you think, you know, why, why can't I get the same greeting from my 12-year-old or, you know, my, my, yeah. my, my significant other or whatever. And uh, I think it's a question worth exploring and that's part of what we get into when we talk about the Red Rover Readers Program is, you know, what makes a positive relationship? You know, why are people vulnerable in some situations and, and not in others, and, um, you know, how, how is empathy part of that, and, and how do you keep that empathy going when, when things get tough, when you feel like someone has been hurtful? You know, why do people shut down? And um, so those are all things that um, I, I'm always thinking about when, I, when we develop our programs. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said judgment, you know, and unconditional love. I mean, there is nothing that we can say to our pets that they won't forgive us. You know, I mean, that they, that That's they, true, see it's, as <laughs> yeah. or, you know, inappropriate yeah. or whatever. Um, when I was a child, I, it was, I, I grew up in the country and there were not a lot of people around and uh, it was a pretty lonely existence except for my dog. And my dogs yeah. and I, um, a couple of them, I mean, I would just, I would take a, a notepad and a pencil or, or a pen and, uh, and the dog and I would, you know, walk down the farm fields for a couple of miles and then, you know, sit with my, my back against a, a fence post and the cows would all come over behind me to see what I was doing because cows do that. And uh, mm-hmm. my dog and I would be sitting there reading poetry, and I think there were plenty of times when I was crying and, you know, whatever. And the dog just, it's all good for the dog. It's all yeah. good. You know, you can get your guard it's, down. and Yeah. yeah. It's amazing, mm-hmm. really. And, I, yeah, similar. I grew up an only child in, in very rural very rural area and, uh, you know, introverted. So, to me, it was just a lot easier to talk to animals and, and, and have relationships and friendships with animals. And I had friendships with, with, you know, I had a lot of friends too, but it just was, it was just, um, I felt more relaxed around the animals. And so it's just something I think about, you know, I think about who are the people I'm most relaxed around. And usually there's something in those relationships relationships that remind me of what it's like to be in a relationship, you know, with a dog where they do care about you unconditionally. And, you know, they may tell you what they don't like because dogs do tell you what they don't like. You know, they have ways of communicating when they're not happy, but it's different because they know they still love you. You know, that that unconditional love I do think is key. And and, uh, if there's a way an animal judges you, you know, it might be that you didn't feed them on time or something or, you know, you didn't take them for a walk when they wanted to or whatever it is, but it's very different um, because they just show such 
such joy and and love to be around you and such loyalty. Um, you know, my dog Jasper, he's just so aware of where I am at, at all times. And you can just see the worry in his face if there's, you know, if someone comes to the door, if I'm gone too mm-hmm. long. It just He's just worried about me. Um, and it, it yeah. feels nice to know someone's, someone's aware of where I am. <laughs> it's yeah. a nice feeling. Well, I think that um, I had a service dog. I was very fortunate to have a service dog for 11 years. And uh, she was an amazing animal. She just, uh, mm-hmm. uh, she was just amazing. And um, I did learn, however, when I had that dog and I, I took her to work with me and, you know, she went everywhere with me. Uh, including traveling to Hawaii or traveling to Canada or, you know, I mean, she went everywhere mm-hmm. except Iceland. They won't, they will not accept a service dog in Iceland. Um, oh, interesting. And, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, I love Iceland. I really do. And the people are wonderful, but I must say that when I was arranging that trip and asking about my dog and being told, no, you cannot bring your service dog um, because every country has their rules, regulations and documentation that you have to have. And uh, I said, well, what do blind people do? What do visually impaired people do? Yeah. You know, who can't see um, without the aid of their dog. And she said, the woman from the embassy said, well, they don't come to Iceland. I'm like, okay. Wow. Well, I guess I guess there's consistency there. I guess at least. Oh my lady. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, but I also learned that there are a lot of people now. You, yeah, not as many who as as who like animals but there are a lot of people who dislike animals um mm-hmm. and for whatever reason um i worked for many years in the same building and it was a, a high high the highest building in in seattle and and we had a cleaning lady who was muslim but instead of telling me that she, you know, wouldn't clean or telling her manager that she wouldn't clean, she just wouldn't clean my studio, you know. And I kept oh. thinking, you know, gosh, I think that they they need to fix their vacuum cleaner. I mean, this floor is getting terrible, you know. Oh, <laughs> and, and finally, somebody told me that worked at night that, nope, she just would close that door and she'd just keep going, even though there was, the dog was no longer there. It was an easy fix. You know, I mean, they had 76 floors that they could, you know, just, okay. Then there were two service dogs in the building. So, gee, don't send her to a floor that has a service dog. You know, easy fix. Yeah. Um, But but that surprised me. I mean, I I, obviously it was her religion, so that's fine. You know, I mean, I didn't have an issue with Mm -hmm. that. I had an issue with how it was handled. Um, The other thing that I've noticed is security in that building. I would come in. Uh, from a 4th Avenue entrance through a Starbucks to get into the rest of the building. And security uh, officers would often tell me that uh, they would get calls from people absolutely irate because there was a dog in the Starbucks. And they would say, well, was the dog dog wearing a vest? Yes. Well, then they get to (laughs) walk through the Starbucks. Um, Yeah. You know, but I have. I have encountered, and my dog uh, had impeccable behavior. I mean, she was impeccable, and a good service dog needs to be impeccable. Um, but I was surprised during those 11 years of how many people really, you know, and, and as I said, they're, they're very vocal. People who do not like yeah. your dog are very vocal. You know, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I do think that there's a lot of, um, even though, 60 to 70% of households now have pets. There are still, 
you know, that smaller percentage, but they're, they're there that, that don't have pets and haven't grown up with pets. And we see that when we work with the kids in the classrooms, too, that, um, you know, often, too, culturally, or they just, their whole, not, not only their household, but their entire kind of subculture just did not have pets around and did not have animals around. And so they don't really understand them. They, they didn't learn that pet language. And so that's a lot of the things that we work with with teachers or humane educators, people who um, may, may not understand that or sort of assume that people kind of understand animals because they grew up with them. And so we, we talk a lot about that, that, you know, we learn dog behavior. I, I learned how to speak dog, you know, really young and didn't even realize I was learning it. But if, if you didn't grow up with a dog, you know, you may not know that that happy dog wagging or that play bow and that excitement that, that dogs have that could look really scary to someone who did not grow up with a dog. So what I've, what I've noticed is a lot of people who don't like animals, they're actually afraid of them. Um, I think fear is usually the underlying emotion towards a lot of negative behaviors that we see in society. And so helping kids early on understand an emotion regulation and understand what real emotion is that they're experiencing is very helpful for changing attitudes and behaviors. And so that's a lot of what we work with with our Red Rover Readers program and um, getting kids to understand animal behavior and animal emotions, but also talking about their emotions and their, and their understanding of when they feel fear. Um, we've got this great book that we use called Buddy Unchained, and it's a dog that's, um, you know, left chained up outside in the cold and the you know, bad weather and is neglected and is scared and, you know, barks at people because he's got nothing else to do. And uh, there's a picture where two kids are throwing balls or no, actually you can't really tell what they're throwing, but um, it looks like a rock, you know, so your first impression is, oh my gosh, these kids are throwing rocks at this dog who's chained up and left outside. And, you know, a humane educator will look at this and be like, oh, those horrible children, they're throwing rocks at a dog, and that's really, really bad, and they should be told not, not to do that. But when you ask kids and you say, hey, why do you think they're throwing, you know, what do you think about this picture? What are they doing? And some of the kids will say they're scared of that dog. So, like, they're, they're, they, you know, they're able to be aware of their emotions and what they might experience. And sometimes we have to give people better space to, to, to kind of understand their experiences and what they're going through because if they don't ever do that, they're never going to change. They're going to mask their behavior. They're going to mask their fear and they're going to never know why they do things. So um, I know that's another really important thing for me is that kids, kids early on really understand their emotions and, and why they are afraid of dogs and, or why they are afraid of in certain situations so that mm -hmm. they, um, you know, don't hide behind behind bad behavior. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, dogs are not accepted because they're of their owners. Their owners either, yeah. um, you know, certain behaviors don't bother them, or they don't feel they can control the animal. And I think that that's unfortunate because. Um, dogs do, have, like I said, my experience with my service dog, you, you, a dog has to have impeccable manners. They have to, and you have to teach them that. I mean, there's, of course, playtime. There's, of course, rowdy roll-on-the-floor time. But if you, you have to have a dog socialized, and I think sometimes owners neglect to socialize their dog, and then that becomes a problem because, you know, if you are yeah. seeking shelter, if you need to go out, but your dog is not sociable. Um, then right. that's untenable. You know, that's untenable. Yeah, that causes Do the you, other bad behavior. 
Yeah, exactly. And I know um, my my current dog uh, is a very exuberant. Um, um, I, I always go for Newfoundlands because they have such uh, calm demeanors. Um, and I've had four Newfoundlands in my life, but this latest one, um, boy, she's not like any other I've ever gotten. She's just <laughs> hyper and she's, you know, exuberant, like I said, but you have a 120 pound dog. Exuberance is not what you need when you're out with other people, you know, you need <laughs> calm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe you can get away with it if it's a chihuahua or something, but not a, a large dog. Um, but you know, I've had to work very heavily, you know, with her. Um, and we're almost there. She's two years old. We're almost there. But we, she still has moments where she'll lunge, where she'll, you know, if somebody, uh, you know, wants to uh, say hello to her when we're out and about, you know, I have to watch very carefully to make sure that she doesn't do the lunge or the, you know, we're we're pretty much past the jumping, you know. But um, I think a lot of times dogs get a bad rap because of their owners. And I suspect that yeah. that being the case, you, you're going to get owners who are in abusive situations who need help and shelter with their animals, even if they haven't done, you know, the hard work of socializing their animal. What happens in that case? What happens when, you know, if there is a shelter that's dog friendly or there is, and yet the dog, the dog needs to be there because the owners or the owner's children need the the dog but the dog hasn't been socialized appropriately. I mean, is that just a deal breaker or are there ways that Red Rover can help the owner or help the shelter deal with that dog? Yeah, that's a great question. We do know that they've had, um, I, I think one of the fears that the that the domestic violence shelters have is that they're going to have more of that. And one of the things that, that they're surprised by is that they haven't had more, that they haven't had as much of that mm-hmm. as they expected. Usually the biggest problem they report is that people don't pick up after their dogs. So, you know, they've got an outdoor play yard and people aren't picking up the poo. That seems to like be the biggest complaint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is usually the programs are set up and we help guide their programs so that the people do have to have their dogs on a leash at all times. And so even if they have mm-hmm. some leash, leash aggression where they bark and stuff, it's not like they're going to be jumping up on people. So going, you know, having some pretty strict containment rules can help with some of those negative behaviors. Um, and then we do connect them to animal shelters and ideally an animal behaviorist. A lot of people, you know, a lot of animal shelters can't afford to have an animal behaviorist, but having someone in the community that they can talk to, maybe a veterinarian, we, we advocate for um, veterinarian partners and often they have some, some behavioral training that they can advise the shelter on. Um, because what one of the things we hear mostly is people, they're really, you know, they're reluctant, they're unsure about the pet thing, they know it's important, so they do it, they develop these pet programs, they see it work, they see the culture change, they see the staff get warm and fuzzy, you know, because the pets are around, they see the people yeah. um, improve, and everyone seems to relax. And then all of a sudden they look at the pets and they say, um, we need programs to help the pets because they know what a survivor looks like who's come out of an abusive relationship. They know the signs of anxiety. They see the depression. They see the grief. They see the um, lack of, um, you know, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for, the kind of unsureness, you know, unsure of themselves. They're, they don't know right from wrong. They can't tell reality. Like all the signs of a person who has gone through an abusive relationship and is trying to heal from it, the pets show the same things. The pets come in mm-hmm. displaying anxiety, depression, 
you know, the dog's equivalent or the cat's equivalent of anxiety, um, you know, is sometimes bad behaviors, you know, peeing, marking, defecating, um, being fearful of men, being fearful of loud noises, being fearful of, you know, things that a domestic violence human survivor would, would feel. So they see these situations unfold right before their eyes and they go, oh, my gosh, they need help, too. So usually it's, it's um, the behavior problems they see are more from the abuse than, than, they would, than, than just being a dog, you know, if that makes sense. <clears throat> yes. So yeah. that's well, kind of I, our next, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that would be huge. Um, but again, you know, I mean, so many times when we, you start off with one, one idea, you go, wait a minute, but we also have to include this, we also have to include this. At what point is it overwhelming for the organization to keep tackling these things? It sounds like Red Rover has a very strong um, infrastructure. Is that the case? Yeah. I mean, I think we're constantly evolving and we're constantly innovating. And um, one of our core values is collaboration. So when com- when someone comes to us or we, we do um, surveys, you know, with all the domestic violence shelters and really try to keep tabs on what their experience has been. And 100% of them have said they would, they totally do not regret doing this. So that's good news. Um, but we hear all sorts mm-hmm. of challenges and, you know, those challenges and, and those problems that they do face, um, they're all surmountable, but they all give us ideas like, okay, well, wow, this, you know, the, the anxiety of a dog coming into a shelter, a fearful dog, you know, how can we help them? How can we take it to the next level? And so uh, we've got this wonderful relationship with Purina um, called the Purple Leash Project, and they've been helping us with funding and awareness building and, you know, developing campaigns through many of their, their individual brands like Tidy Cats. So our next project with them or our next goal is we're going to try to make 25% of shelters pet friendly by 2025. Um, but in addition, you know, how else can we, can we help with, with the challenges? And so they've got a great mm-hmm. network of veterinarians. And so working with their network of veterinarians and starting to do more um, you know, outreach with veterinarians to find out, you know, are there ways we can help connect domestic violence shelters to behaviorists or veterinarians to kind of take it to the next level when they're ready. And I think that's the big key. You know, we're, we're not pushing this. We're, we're just saying, hey, we, we know this is a problem. We're both on the same page. You know, domestic violence shelters, uh, with the research that we've done, that we've been a part of, we know the domestic violence shelters know pets are an issue. And, and that they're important to their clients and that it's, it's significant both in their ability to leave, you know, removing the barrier to actually leaving, and also they know that it's significant reason why they go back. So they know it's important and we're just there to say, hey, start small, you know, convert one room to become pet friendly, uh, start taking small dogs, start taking cats, and then just are there with them through that evolution. You know, we want them to be successful um, we care just as much about the humans that are coming out of these abuse, abusive situations as we do the, the animals. So we want this to be good for both. And uh, mm-hmm. I think they learn that pretty quick when, when we develop the relationship with them. One of the things that I discovered um, when I was seeking a uh, psychiatric service dog, it's unfortunate that the ADA call, refers to them as psychiatric service dogs because um, many Many individuals and organizations picture, you know, um, non-medicated schizophrenics with animals. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, I had somebody from a very prominent um, 
service dog organization um, tell me, I, I, I said, you know, I was going to this organization and if I said their name, you'd recognize it when I was looking for a service dog for PTSD. And I was having a hard time finding a, a, a dog, finding anybody who would help me, finding any organization outside of the military um, that would help with that. And I kept calling this organization thinking that they were there to help because I knew they helped with other issues. And I was just kind of given the cold shoulder. And finally I asked the person I was talking to, I said, why? I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. Why is there this attitude about the psychiatric service dogs? And her response to me was, well, we just feel that if somebody has psychiatric disorders, they should not be entrusted with a dog. And, and I oh. just, I just about fell down because I went, you do understand that psychiatric conditions include PTSD, depression, anxiety, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's um, wow. very, yeah, very <sighs> common. I, I was just absolutely blown away by that. So I think it shows the stigma, you know, the stigma of mental health um, is, is such yeah, a big absolutely. issue, you know, in the field of mental health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is still, uh, I, and I know my service dog passed away three years ago. And so I started the search for another service dog. And again, because I'm not in the military, nobody, there's nobody who really can offer assistance, training, uh, working with animals, um, for a psychiatric service dog, for a PTSD dog, unless you're in the military. They, you know, the veterans, wow. they, they pretty much have figured out how to do it. But um, I tried to start a nonprofit huh. several years ago, but it was hard to get personnel and still work full time and, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. But I think there's a tremendous need for assistance for... Yeah, uh, that's interesting. A, a, the domestic violence aspect of this, you know, some studies show as many as 60 to 80 percent of domestic violence um, survivors have PTSD that's undiagnosed, untreated. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. people who go through trauma have residue from that trauma, and many yeah. of those residual problems can be improved with a service animal, but it's very expensive. Um, you know, one of the local service dog uh, support groups that I um, um, support, um, they do tremendous work for uh, service dogs and training and providing and, and helping people get service dogs through their organization. If it's a physical mm-hmm. need, not and right. you know and, and every not year I do the fundraiser and every year I go this year are you going to start something this year you know yeah <laughs> and wow that's and really, yeah that's good. that's good to know because so, we have talked about we've we have talked about trying to um, offer you know help the domestic violence shelters start programs for the survivors to have their own pets trained as service dogs. Um, so I don't even well, know how possible that is because I know some of them, you know, again, if they've got their own anxiety issues, it's going to be really hard for them to be the ones being in, support in, when they kind of need their in, own support. But, yeah. But in my experience, you also need something to focus on. That's not you and your problem. Yeah. Yeah. And training your dog for these new circumstances uh, can be very useful. Also, uh, yeah. some states have different, you know, in, in some areas you can train your own service animal and others you can't, um, you mm-hmm. know, so it, 
you know, it, it kind of varies from state to state, which I don't quite understand because supposedly a state yeah. is not supposed to do any restrictions that are greater than the ADA itself. And yet, you know, I, I don't know, you know, there's uh, maybe they huh. just haven't been challenged. Somebody comes up with it and says, yeah, this is a great idea and nobody challenges them, but it's a, it's a tremendous area for need. And as I said, I spent yeah. a couple of years to start a program and I did get a cadre of, um, I, when I first started it, I thought, okay, we'll rescue dogs, and those could be, you know, shelter dogs. Well, no, I learned very quickly on from the trainers that no, unless a shelter dog is born in the shelter so that they know where it came from and what it's been exposed to, you can't, with a service dog, just rescue a dog because there could be something yeah. in that dog's bathroom that triggers, you know, you just can't. So then right. I went around and I contacted all the breeders and I said okay every dog that you breed every litter you have there are pet quality would you consider because we're a 501c3 making a donation of that dog taking your full tax credit you know for that donation Mm -hmm. and we could then draw from that pool and I did get Mm -hmm. some response from them um and what I would do uh, is to try to match up uh, a person's need with well, do you live in an apartment? Well, then you don't want the you know the the husky. You you know you know you can't have that. What what do you need? What task do you need from the dog? Do you need the dog to go, uh, you know, a, a circuit around your house and come back to you and tell you it's safe? There's nobody there, or do you need a dog to help you calm down when you're having anxiety? To, you know, what do you what task do you mm, need? Yeah, what, what is the task? Need? Yeah, what breed would be most uh, uh, likely to be able to accomplish that? And then what are your life circumstances? Because then that would determine what kind of a breed you get. And then I'd go out and just beg for a puppy for that person, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And it became, you know, overwhelming for, for one person to do. Um, but, boy, is there a need. There, you know, I had yeah. so much Yeah, we'll have to look into that more. Because I'm, I'm curious about the whole, um, how it, it seems different for veterans compared to what, you know, yeah, the situation, they, the need you're saying. It seems really different it feels like it's much easier to find dogs for veterans. So I'm, I'm curious to see why the, the difference, you know, what, where the, how that happened. <laughs> I need to go back and do some research on that now. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a recognition that veterans are likely to have PTSD and need a service dog. I think that's the big mm-hmm. difference. I don't mm-hmm. think that, and so therefore, you know, you get, uh, well, uh, with my dog, uh, Dilly, the one who passed away, I actually had uh, a gentleman from Texas that I interviewed about service dogs for veterans. And um, he helped me train, train Dilly. I mean, we just basically did it over the the phone. I'd say, okay, she's doing this. Can you hear that? And he'd say, yes, yes, yes. This is what you need to do here. Um, you know, so they have expertise. Um, but again, it's funding, you know, I mean, I can't, I didn't have the budget to fly my dog to Texas, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's yeah. complicated, you know. It all. is. Um, I, huh. I want to get off of that, even though that's my, my, my personal drive. I, I keep thinking at some point before I die, there has to be an organization to help women with service dogs. <laughs> yeah, well it, well, it feels like, you know, maybe the first step is, is getting kind of this recognition that DV survivors have PTSD. Like that it's going to be yeah. like the research around that it's got to already be out there, but if not, you know, yeah. some statistic to help put some, uh, you know, understanding around this that 80% or 70% or whatever have PTSD, then it seems like the same setup for veterans would be easier to, you know, 
put in place. Yeah. But yeah. Exactly. And there's also a lot of funding for, uh, I mean, they, they might argue, but I mean, compared to domestic violence situations, there's more money yeah. going into help for veterans um, than there is for domestic violence uh, in that, yeah. in the, the dog arena. Well, I got off on a tangent. Yeah. Sorry about that. But I just feel so strongly. No, those are good, that, those are good things to bring up. And I, the, the idea that the domestic violence um, you know, is not as well funded too. It's something we hear about a lot. And one of the po- real positives of bringing animals into this does really seem to, it, it feels to me, you know, this is anecdotally, a lot of people do that victim blaming, you know, of the domestic violence survivors. But when they hear the situation and how the pets are involved and how people won't leave because of the pets, it seems to broaden their understanding of what it's like to be trapped in an abusive relationship. Um, on multiple, multiple levels when you start to think about the, the, the control and the manipulation that someone would do involving pets and, and the kind of mm-hmm. what it must be like to live under that kind of control and manipulation, mm-hmm. it seems to increase empathy for domestic violence survivors and brings new funders to those shelters, mm-hmm. domestic violence shelters. So mm-hmm. uh, it's encouraging to me that maybe some of that victim blaming um, will, be, will be fixed because people understand it a little bit better. Yeah. Well, and that's a very good point. And I always thought that, you know, I've, I've talked with people over the years um, who don't get domestic violence. Um, I'm thinking of one particular board member yeah. from um, an organization that worked with handicapped children. And he mentioned to me that he had briefly served on a board for domestic violence, um, but he left that. And I said, why? Why did you leave that? Expecting him to say burnout or something. And he said, oh, mm-hmm. It's just so depressing. Here, hmm. we, you know, we make the children smile and there's, you know, and, and I just looked at him I, with shock and went, well, I'm, I'm sorry we can't make domestic violence more entertaining and enjoyable. I, you know, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, huh. yeah. And, <laughs> I, and yet with the, the dogs, see, if you can... I, I did have several people that came on board to help me with the dog thing. Uh, they wouldn't come if I said it's for domestic violence, but if I said it's for, you know, an animal, if it's the dogs, oh, okay, then I'll come. Mm. And if the domestic violence, you know, uh, uh, ancillary yeah. to that, it's, it's, it's all about the dogs. So I think it would yeah. be, it should be a little bit easier to get that. Ah, I'll let it go. Um, let's talk more about Red Rover. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, we could talk for We could talk all day about some of this stuff. So I really appreciate the, oh, the conversation. One of the things that I wanted to ask is we talked briefly about um, people not liking or being vocal. Um, does Red Rover have any, uh, offer any assistance? for um, survivors or just recipients in general of Red Rover services to help them deal with an, uh, any potential negative um, uh, repercussions for having their, their animal or trying to take care of their animal. You mentioned early on in our conversation that sometimes people didn't get why somebody wouldn't leave, you know, blah, 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 you know, uh, why wouldn't you just walk away from that pet? Do you offer suggestions mm-hmm. and any training for the um, victims? Um, who are, you know, trying to save their pets and everything. Is there any kind of program or is that up to each individual shelter? Well, we actually operate a website called safeplaceforpets.org. So that's a really great thing to, you know, make sure I mention. Um, And this is a website that has, it's really the resource for a domestic violence survivor. 
So they need to leave an abusive relationship. It's a website they can go to that has all, you know, various tools and tips um, for for them on ways they, you know, where there's programs. It's a searchable database, so they can put in their zip code or their provincial code because it has um, Canadian shelters in there too to find, you know, which shelters have programs for pets, and they could be on site or they could be off site. Um, but it also has tips for, you know, the, the domestic violence shelter staff so they can um, learn more about this, this issue um, and uh, as well as um, just, you know, the hotline for what they, where they can call uh, for tips on how to escape an abusive situation, other organizations dedicated to this, information about pet protective orders since a lot of states now have the pets, you know, covered under protective orders too. So just a lot of resources that can be helpful all on one website. Great. And if I wanted to learn, is that the same website I'd go to if I just want to learn more about Red Rover in general? For Red Rover, it's a little easier, redrover.org. So yeah, definitely um, people can can check us out, uh, learn ways to help. So, you know, we used to focus on October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month as a time for people to really help spread awareness and um, donate to our program to get a purple leash and become a monthly donor, get a purple leash to kind of, again, spread awareness about this issue. But now we kind of just do it all year round because Purina has really been helping us increase awareness. And so uh, people can also go to the purpleleashproject.com to learn about the project with Purina and how to get a purple leash and, um, you know, how to help spread awareness. We know that um, beauticians, hairstylists uh, are the number one person uh, people told about abuse. And so there are a lot of states that are requiring domestic violence education for these um, stylists. And so giving them information about pets in this safe place for pets.org website is another outreach tool that we do. And so if people want to give a, you know, give information to their hairstylist or their veterinarian, we have posters that people can download from our website um, and little wallet cards that you can order and give to your hairstylist or veterinarian, just as a, a, a real simple, easy way to help and be part of this. Uh, program. Wonderful. Nicole, our time is up. I can't believe it went so fast, probably because I was talking most of the time. Um, but I appreciate <laughs> all the information. I certainly appreciate uh, everything that Red Rover is doing. And um, I look forward to hearing more in the future uh, about some yeah, of the benefits. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. And thank you for coming uh, on the show and talking uh, with me. And you want to get started with that uh, PTSD service dog thing for domestic violence people, you let me know. <laughs> we'll I am going to keep talking. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely talk to our staff about that. And that, that is, um, that is something that uh, I am, I'm more curious about now after having this conversation. So thank you for giving me the idea. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, well, thank you. That that wraps it up for us, Nicole uh, Forsyth of Red Rover. If you have more information, redrover.org. And uh, thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us again next week.